You're listening to the David Cassidy Connections with your host, Louise Poynton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the David Cassidy Connections, your podcast all about David, his music, his friendships, his legacy. I am your host, Louise Poynton, and today I'm thrilled to welcome my guest, Las Vegas entertainer Michael LaRocca. Michael started his show business career in 1970 in a local production in Buffalo, New York of The Wizard of Oz, a film which has been an important part of his life. Three years later, and still only 14, he made his professional debut and went on to star in a successful nightclub show, Bravo Broadway. He has hosted several telecasts of the Miss America State Pageant, his own television shows, starred in numerous stage musicals, including Grease, Godspell, Oklahoma and Cabaret. He has also created several musical reviews and taken his successful one-man show to Las Vegas. Michael is a minister with the Universal Life Church and calls himself the Tin Man as a result of numerous spinal surgeries he has undergone. He has been a David Cassidy fan since 1970, admitting the majority of things he has done in his life lead back to David. The link to his Facebook page, The Partridge Family Get on the Bus, can be found in the accompanying show notes. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much, Louise. I never told you that Louise is one of my very favorite names. Oh, really? Yes. I have an Aunt Louise, who I adored. She was my grandmother's aunt, so aunt twice removed. And I'm a big fan of the musical Gypsy. So every time I hear your name, I think, Louise, sing out Louise. (laughs) (laughs) Now, your career, Michael, has been spectacular and taken you on a long journey with many challenges, which we will discuss. But all roads, as I said just now, lead back to David Cassidy. Can you tell me why he's been so important to you? Prior to the Partridge family coming on the air, I was a Bobby Sherman fan, and I had Bobby Sherman posters all over my walls in my bedroom. When the Partridge family came on the air that night, I I was transformed. I took down all the Bobby posters, and David was starting to appear in the magazines, but not as much yet. I, I took the posters down, I couldn't wait, and I wanted to hear them sing again. After the telecast that first night, my dad took me to get pizza. The song Indiana Wants Me came on the air, and it was as close to the Partridge family melodically. And I just kept hearing that song over and over, and I wanted the records, and I wanted to see David again. And I couldn't wait till the next week. But this was all before... uh, um, internet and cell phones and so you just had to wait and you had to look at the magazines so that's what I did and then being a nightclub entertainer which I've done musicals which I love Um, I've worked with Miss America pageant which I loved but being a Vegas entertainer was 
my primary goal. And the two people that influenced me the most were David Cassidy and Lola Falana. Those are the two entertainers that I said, I have to do this. That's what I want to do. I want to be like the Partridge family going to Las Vegas. And I did. So, yes, he's been so much a part of me um, my entire life. And uh, in Las Vegas, I put a Partridge family segment in my show. I had all the the rust-colored, the original costumes made for my cast. I played David, and it was such a big hit. Even that, putting him in my show and him being part of that. Yeah, so he's been a tremendous influence. I have, there's one picture I have of David in the recording session, uh, like this, and I have a picture exactly the same way from the recording session. So, yeah, very big influence. Can you just elaborate on that influence? Being younger in 1970, um, watching the show every week and having the albums and the music and playing it over and over. I still play it in my car. Uh, playing his music over and over again. I saw him in concert, and I couldn't move for hours after the concert. I couldn't speak. I couldn't move. I was totally mesmerized by him. And I saw Bobby Sherman in concert, too, but it wasn't the same. And... You know, here I, I was with a cousin of mine, and here I am in this big auditorium, all these screaming women, and I'm just sitting there with my mouth open going, I, I want to be him. I want this. I want to do this. Um, even one of my costumes that I had in Las Vegas was very similar to the one he wore in that concert. It was a white jumpsuit with a lot of fringe. And um, so I have a white jacket with a lot of fringe that that I wore in my Vegas show. There is the story of him and I almost meeting. Do you want to hear that one? I'd love to. Okay. Yes. Tell us that. In Las Vegas with the Partridge Family segment in my show. One of the entertainment papers, this is when David was doing uh, FX at the MGM Grand, and the paper kept saying, David, when are you going to see Michael? David, when are you going to see Michael? He's doing this tribute to you. It was my night off, and I went to the movies with a friend. My pager and I had left that in the car. And the hotel, I was playing at the Debbie Reynolds Hotel at the time. And the hotel kept paging me over and over. When I, the movie was over and I got in the car and seeing all these pages from the hotel. So I thought something was wrong, maybe a fire or something. So I called back the hotel and they said, where have you been? I said, why? What's the matter? David Cassidy came here to meet you. Yeah. He waited around, I guess, for about 40 minutes, and, and they said he, they couldn't get in touch with me. So I'm performing, he's performing, 
and we never actually met. Mm. And mm. that for me was a very sad day. And when he died, I thought, that's never going to happen. I'm never going to actually meet him and and see him. And even as he got older and his voice was changing, I, I was still by his side. I think in some ways he became a dear friend, even though we never met yeah. in person close, but never met. But my sad David Cassidy story, we just didn't ever connect again. And he came there to see me. Yeah. So, mm. you know. Yes. Did you have the chance to go and see any of his shows when he was in Vegas? No. No. Oh. Mm-mm. Yeah. No, his schedules were pretty similar yeah. in performance. Yeah. Mm. Do you think Vegas was a good place for him to be? Would you have perhaps preferred to see him doing a different kind of acting well, and entertaining? You know, in, in FX, he was, um, again, because of our similar schedules, I never really got to see that show. Um, I had a friend who worked on it. I read the reviews. Um, I actually auditioned for it when Michael... Uh, Crawford. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> was uh, doing... I was auditioning it for his understudy. And it was before I got the job at Debbie Reynolds Hotel. So I knew about the show, etc. But I, I think he shined in that particular production because I guess they did include some Partridge Family stuff where he went into the audience. There are certain people in Las Vegas that can be headliners and do the Frank Sinatra. Bette Midler was like that. Big production show centered around her. I think people went to CFX because of David because he was in it. He did Blood Brothers on Broadway with his brother, but I think concert life was better for him. Yeah. His concert life, where he was there singing his songs to his crowd, that was always packed. Always packed for him. I miss him terribly. Terribly miss Mm -hmm. him. Uh, I would have liked to have had the opportunity just to sit and talk with him, to let him know what a big influence he was. I did get to do that with Lola Falana, so at least half of my two influences I did (laughs) have time with. (laughs) Tell me about the other influence, where that originated from. Well, it originated uh, from with Lola Falana was the first Vegas entertainer I ever saw. I can't remember what year it was, 1980, maybe. She was headlining uh, with Frankie Valley, and we went to see the shows my first time in Vegas as a tourist. Went to see her show, and again, I was speechless. I couldn't talk afterward. And as we were driving back up the strip, I was counting letters of stars' names to see if my name was going to fit (laughs) on one of those marquees. Then uh, Lola had um, her muscular dystrophy. 
challenge, and she stopped. And she said that if she prayed to God that if I am healed, I'll spend the rest of my life ministering for you. She got her healing. She received her healing. She gave up show business. And I was singing at that time at the cathedral in Las Vegas. And this one little Italian nun kept saying, oh, you're just like Lola Falana. She would come in, blah, blah, blah. She came to church. She was visiting her mother. She came to church. And I finally had the opportunity to meet her and sit and talk with her about her influence in my life. And not only as an entertainer, but also spiritually. Because once I lost my voice and couldn't sing anymore, she was there. She was part of what I was doing. And then I was able, they hired me to be the master of ceremonies for the Bishop of Las Vegas. And I was putting together all of his masses, traveling, and putting his big Eastern Christmas masses on television. So I was still doing what I loved to do. It was very similar to pageants. In fact, the bishop said once, he thinks I miss America. <laughs> yes. Um, but all through that part of my life, Lola was there, right. part of uh, the church, part of me as well. As I said, I met one half of my influence, and the other passed away way too soon for me. My throat surgery was actually surgery on my lungs, not my throat. Um, After Debbie's place closed, um, we were looking for, uh, oh no, I'm sorry, it was after the World Trade Center, which was my second hotel, after they closed, uh, it was right before 9-11. My God, I had that. That happened to me, 9-11 here in, in New York. And then my friend murdered in December. But I was um, in the hospital. I thought I had the AIDS pneumonia, the pneumocystis pneumonia, because I couldn't breathe. And I called this uh, priest that was part of the AIDS organization I had been volunteering with, and he put me in touch with this doctor, and the doctor put me in the hospital right away, and he said, you have pneumonia in both lungs, and it's really bad. So what I need to do is prepare you for the worst, and let's hope for the best. My parents came up from Arizona. My friends all the way you know, were coming to say goodbye to me. We didn't know if I was going to live or die. And they did this surgical procedure where I had to be under anesthesia, and they went through my throat to flush out my lungs. That was the only way they could get it all out. And one of the things I had to sign was that vocal cords could be affected by this kind of thing that they're going to do. And they were. Now, I, uh, the last ear, nose, and throat specialist I saw uh, said, you don't have any more scar tissue, but you're going to need to learn how to speak and how to breathe much differently with a speech therapist and a vocal coach. Um, I haven't done that. So I've allowed this voice to remain the only thing that I find difficult at times is 
when I call the phone company or the cable company and, and they'll say, well, ma'am, could you hold on a bit? I guess my voice sounds like an old woman who has smoked for 50 years. So I have to correct them. That's fine. Let's go back to your early years. Were the movies always an important part of your life when you were growing up? Yes. Yes. We had a theater here called Studio Arena Theater. And I started taking acting classes at that theater when I was 12. And siren going by and the dogs barking. <laughs> I started professionally, as you said, when I was 14 years old. Um, I started my professional career. So at that theater, I got to apprentice on many shows. I was in other shows. And... I actually, it was funny because 20 years later, I went back and taught at the school, at the acting school. Um, so I had all these uh, professionals around me all the time. And right. the musicals, um, I remember we did, I did Peter Pan with Bonnie Franklin. And it was just mesmerizing. Um, her first night flying. Uh, during our tech rehearsal, and she, Peter Foy, the big flying guy, he does all this flying things uh, there in Las Vegas, he flew her. And she went up, and she's flying back and forth across the stage, and she started crying. And they brought her down. She took Peter Foy, she hugged him and said, you have just made the dream of my life come true. It was so touching, you know, being around Celeste Holm, who was the fairy godmother in Cinderella. I was with all these people that I respected as artists and was able to learn from. One of the things that this was part of that apprentice program I was part of during high school was you had to learn every aspect of the theater. You had to work on lights. You had to work on props. You had to work backstage as a dresser. There were so many different things you had to do. I remember sewing appellets on a production of Romeo and Juliet doing costumes. And the reason was that you could appreciate, as an actor, all the people around you that are making you look good that are making you the star you want to be. So that um, influence in my life was, was very, very helpful all through high school. And then I just continued on with musical theater, always wanting more. I want to be in Vegas. I want to be a nightclub act. And um, there must be something going on. Um, putting together Bravo Broadway was a tremendous hit from day one. I was actually kind of shocked at how big it became so quickly. We had two companies at one time, one out west and one back east, um, performing all over the place. It was a, a show, a review of Broadway show songs. And so I was finally doing the nightclub part of it. 
there was a dinner theater here where um, we were performing, and but it was late night. We have a huge, huge theater here called the Shays Buffalo Theater. And that's where they bring in all the big national tours, Hamilton, Wicked, all the big national tours come to that theater. The nightclub was right behind the stage door. It was right across the street from the stage door. So, so many times the actors would come over. The little girls from Annie loved me. and he was there um but so we were doing um the nightclub part of it and then i said you know maybe we could do some musicals here as well we could do the musicals early in the evening and then do the nightclub show at night so there were times when i was on stage from eight o'clock at night until two o'clock in the morning um and but it was wonderful it was a great time and then Miss America came along, and that's history again. Another yes. magical yeah. moment in my life. Yeah. Yes. They tell us today that we don't have stars because they're not processed in the same way as they were during the golden age of Hollywood. When people were growing up in the 1920s, 1930s, you wanted to be a movie star. That was everyone's dream Who do you consider the greatest actors from the golden age of Hollywood? Being at the Debbie Reynolds Hotel in Las Vegas, my show was the second show of the evening. Debbie Reynolds' show was on first, and then I was on the second show, and then Kenny Kerr, who was a very famous female impersonator, had his own show, which was the late-night show. There were times when I would stand backstage and just watch her and be mesmerized. I mean, she was in her 60s. She wasn't tap dancing like she did in Singing in the Rain. (laughs) But she was still out there. Now, she was trained in that way. What to do, what to say, how to address uh, the press, how to... Run your life. And even through her uh, being America's sweetheart at one time, and then her divorce from Eddie Fisher and the whole thing with Elizabeth Taylor, she stuck it out. And working, not in her show, but being part of the Debbie Reynolds family there at the hotel, I got to see her when she was Debbie, the person, and Debbie Reynolds, the star. She knew exactly when to do what she needed to do to make it right. And this her 65th birthday, they were producing this big party for her with a lot of other Vegas stars, having this big party for her. Kenny and I were going to emcee the show for her, and do segments of our show in this other thing. This producer came in from California, and he had all these other acts performing for her. And she was wonderful. She sat in the front, greeted everybody. They brought the big prop birthday cake out onto the stage. And I introduced her, you know, ending with, and the unsinkable, Miss Debbie Reynolds. 
She comes up on stage. The audience, of course, is standing. She's waving to everybody. She gives me a big hug and kisses me and said, I hate this. I won't say the word. But then in my ear, she became just Debbie. Debbie Reynolds, obviously, and Judy Garland. Is there something very special about any actor, be they in the movies or on stage, where they can effectively give the audience a backstage pass to who they are emotionally? They expose themselves in such a way through the characters they're playing that they reveal a little bit of themselves. Well, I think as an actor, you, and there are many actors that do this. I've heard that Meryl Streep, even when they break, they're in character. She stays in character. I did Vegas Vacation. I was a featured extra in Vegas Vacation, and it paid my bills for one summer, which was great. But you sit around and wait more than you actually do stuff. So I know a lot of the actors, and I've read about them, uh, Heath Ledger, similar, where they get so engrossed in the character. For myself personally, it hurt quite a bit because people would see me on stage. Now I was in my 20s and early 30s in my heyday. You know, I had a 32-inch waist at the time going to the gym every day and no gray hair. Um <laughs> And people would see me on stage and they would, oh, I'm such a big crush on you. I remember being with this one gentleman and he said, I can't believe I'm sitting here with Michael LaRocca. Oh, my God. So they were in love or fell in love with the onstage persona. When they got to know the real person behind the onstage persona, They said, oh, my God, he snores when he sleeps, and he has to go to the bathroom, and he looks terrible when he wakes up in the morning. And, yeah, because that's the real me. That's not. So, for me, letting people in was always discouraging because I felt if I let them in, eventually they're going to want to go their own way because I'm not what they think I am. And I think a lot of actors will go through that. Um, Maybe that's why actors will marry and fall in love with other actors or people in the industry so they can understand better. And they know that there's the real person behind the stage persona, like Debbie Reynolds. And, you know, we've seen documentaries about Judy Garland, um, but... So to answer the question, I think that it's very difficult for actors to be themselves and let somebody in because you don't know why they're in. Mm. You don't know if they're in because they fell in love with something on stage or they, uh, (laughs) it's the big dog, or they um, are getting to know the real you. And the funny thing is, as my feelings for that person would grow, theirs were started, their feelings starting to diminish because I was getting to know the person and they were finding out I wasn't the persona. And I think that a lot of actors and singers go through that. I just wonder if you had met David, maybe your image of him may have turned out to be different 
Because so many actors say, like you said just now, if people really knew the real me, maybe they wouldn't like me. So it's best that I keep them at arm's length and I just mm-hmm. continue to sell the image. With David, I think it was different because when I was ready to meet him, I was ready to meet the real him and not the onstage persona. We were uh, both entertainers at that time. We were both in Las Vegas, you know. Um, you hear about what the person went through. And I think growing up in the theater, being in the theater from the time I was very young, I always was behind the scenes and seeing celebrities like Celeste Holman, Bonnie Franklin, and uh, um, oh God, John Voight, uh, and other people like that. You see them because you're working with them. So you've already seen their, you know, Bonnie would love to walk around the dressing room with no top on. She was always hot. (laughs) You know, I got an early uh, sex education from that because I was was 14. No, I was 15 at the time when we did Mm -hmm. Peter Pan. So, um, and I worked with a lot of wonderful celebrities. So I think that at... When I first got into theater, I was mesmerized as a a kid and starstruck, very starstruck. Hmm. Um, I met a gentleman who was in the original movie, West Side Story, and he was on stage um, uh, in a lot of Broadway shows. In fact, it was funny as when he and I were getting closer and I was getting to know him, he was in the Betty Grable version of Hello Dolly on Broadway and that's the production my parents saw so there was kind of neat and they finally got to meet him so I think for me because I was I think 40 years old late 30s early 40s when that whole David thing was going on so I think I was ready to meet him and not his persona not the Partridge family Keith but David David yes yeah yes some years ago, I read a story where you met Ginger Rogers. Yes. She was completely out of character, but she had this magic about her. Yes. Uh, that was for the uh, grand reopening of that big theater, our Shays Buffalo Theater here. Okay. And um, when I met her, she was already in makeup and costume for the event. So for me, it was like, wow, Ginger Rogers. <laughs> and here I am, this little guy from Buffalo, New York, and I'm being able to do a commercial with Ginger Rogers. That's pretty cool. Um, the next day, my friend who was the uh, art director of that commercial, she's the one who brought in Ginger Rogers and hired the people for the commercial. She said, do you want to go to the airport with us And when I take her back? So I went, we went to her hotel, and when she came out, I don't know why the dog is howling, when she came out of her room, she looked like anybody's grandmother because she didn't have her wig on, She didn't have all her makeup on. She was dressed very simply, getting onto a plane. And I walked her onto the plane, and she kissed me, and she said, I hope we can see each other again. And I, again, it was refreshing 
more than disappointing to have had that opportunity, as you said, to see behind the scenes. And it's a memory I, I can live with forever that I had that opportunity in my 20s to actually touch her and be with her and see her out of character. I think that's why I was so sad that I didn't have the opportunity to meet David because I would have really wanted to know him. Yes. To know him. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I just wanted to mention your theatrical credits because when you starred in Greece in 1984, the stage review said, your slick performance as Danny is a comic delight. <laughs> now, some people describe acting as a childish profession because you get the opportunity to play any role, be any character. Why do you like being someone else? Well, it is an escape. I think uh, to some degree it's therapeutic to some degree. Um for me, always being in musicals, although I mean, I did do a couple of actual plays, um, but nothing heavy drama. I've always wanted to do that. So the musical performances were an escape to some degree of reality of life for those couple of hours that you're on stage playing this other person. It was like, okay, I can leave all my troubles behind and sing, put on your Sunday clothes in Hello Dolly and, uh, you know, and be Pippin for a couple of hours. So, um, and my dogs are named after characters I've played in musicals. Yeah. Uh, Pippin was my first starring role in a musical, and I have a little dog named Pippin. And... Um, Barnaby was the first time I did Hello Dolly twice, and the first time I did Dolly, I played Barnaby. So Barnaby is my big pit bull. His name is Barnaby. So they're right. named after characters I play. So I think it's an escape more than childish. It's uh, therapeutic, and it's a way to just be somebody else for a little while. And yes. it's nice. The funny thing, too, I remember I was really sick. I had bad cold. This is the second time I did Dolly. And mm. I went on stage, and all of a sudden, the cold wasn't there. It's like the character didn't have a cold, and yeah. I was into the character, so I was feeling a lot better. And I thought that was really interesting, because a lot of people say that sickness is partly in our, our minds and such. Um, so I thought that was an interesting thing, that my escape also turned into a wellness therapy. Yeah. Very much, very much. Are you quite a spiritual person? Yes. Um, I was religious, uh, very into my Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, but my episode in Las Vegas was really horrific how they got rid of me. Um mm. When that all happened, I never lost my spirituality or my Christianity, but I did lose faith in the church. Um, the institution of that. Uh, being with Miss America for so many years, there was a lot of politics involved with Miss America. 
The Roman Catholic Church is worse than the United States Congress as far as politics is concerned. So it, it was a, a devastating moment in my life. Um, I'm still working through forgiveness. Uh, and that event happened 12 years ago. And I'm still working through forgiveness. Um, but spirituality has always been there. I volunteered for hospice for a time. So I was working with a lot of families and people that were nearing death. Um, mm. When anyone died in my family, my mother would always call and say, okay, get to work, get to work, you know, because I was able to do the comforting. And, and it was a really sincere part of who I am. I have a friend in Morocco right now who um, wanted to come to the United States. And his visa was denied uh, just two weeks ago. And he's been going through a really, really hard time. But I spend time with him. I FaceTime him. I, uh, he's in his mid-30s, and he's gay in a, in a country that is very unfriendly to gay people. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's a predominantly Muslim country, and uh, if you could go to jail for years for being gay. So coming here was a big dream of his. But spending my time with him has been a joy because it's the spirituality of saying, okay, this life is valuable. You still have other options. What are your other options? You know, because there's points when, you know, I think everybody in the world at one point might contemplate suicide when they're going through a rough time. Um, I was kind of afraid that he was actually going to do it. Um, so I like that I've been able to help him and keep him going with his new motivation. And that's all part of my spirituality. I don't know what heaven is. Um, I, I don't believe that God is a white man sitting on a cloud with a long white beard writing down who's naughty and nice in his big book. Now, that's Santa Claus. That's not God. Um, I am always focused. I love watching shows about the universe. And when you see the complexities of the universe, for me, that's God. That Big Bang, if that's what actually happened, it's still a theory, but the Big Bang is God. When we can look from the Hubble Space Telescope billions of years into the past. That's pretty incredible. And so all of that to me is God. I, I, I posted this recently. I'm trying to get rest and peace changed to enjoy your heaven. Because when you go, the hope is that you're going to see your loved ones again, that you're free from pain and anxiety and the troubles of this world. Um, you get a big hug from Jesus. I mean, that's my Christianity. And if that's what it's supposed to be, why would you want to rest in peace? I want to enjoy it. So E-Y-H, enjoy your heaven instead of R-I-P for rest in peace. So yeah. I'm pushing that along a little bit. Yeah. Um, so again, I don't know what heaven is. Uh, I don't know what, I, I don't like the way religion projects God. Because uh, I think they make him, people feel guilty about who they are a lot of times. Mm -hmm. I 
renounced my Roman Catholicism publicly. Because of the position I was holding, I wrote to the bishop, uh, the archbishop of the uh, diocese that we belong to, and the bishop in, or the cardinal in New York, who was head of the all the bishops of the United States. And I renounced it, and I wanted it uh, recorded that I actually renounced my Roman Catholicism in the Roman Catholic Church. When you make your first communion, when you make your confirmation, if you get married, if you become a priest or a nun, all those records go back to your church of baptism. My church of baptism mm -hmm. was here in Buffalo. And so I put in, well, the only thing I wanted to hear from was that my church of baptism put in my record that I renounced my Roman Catholicism. And then I converted to Episcopalian, much more welcoming, much more open. If I had a partner, I know I could get married in my church, which yeah. is terrific. And the church I belong to here was built in the 1800s. Oh, my God. It's it's small, but it's so magnificent. You know, the, the stained glass and the it's just gorgeous. I love that place. Yeah. Do you believe the universe has our lives planned for us? No. I believe that there is some type of movement that directs us, but our free will allows us to make particular decisions. Okay. When those decisions are wrong or incorrect for us, and we have to learn from that experience. And then we go back on the right path. I always think of Dorothy in the Yellow Brick Road when she meets the scarecrow and it's the crossroad and she doesn't know which way to go. Sometimes we go the wrong way. And sometimes we go the right way. And when you go the wrong way, you got to circle back and go down the Yellow Brick Road the right way to get to Emerald City. Um, so there is a plan for the human species. But I also believe there has to be other uh, life forms out there. You know, you know, I, I believe there, there has to be. This universe is so great. What, how did the dinosaurs that lived on this planet, why don't we talk about them in church? You know, why don't we discuss the fact that those people were here or those creatures were here billions of years ago and they actually stayed on the planet longer than we've been here as humans. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I believe that it's all tied together for us to learn to grow. And every religion believes in helping your fellow man. Every organized religion believes that no matter what it is, from Buddhism to Roman Catholic, help your fellow man, be good to everybody, and forgive when you need to forgive, including forgiving yourself, which is sometimes the most difficult. You do a lot of work with charities and non-profit organizations. Do you feel you have a certain responsibility with your celebrity status to give back to the community? In the, way oh, yes. that, in the way that you do, because you were, until before the pandemic, opening your home for Christmas Day and Thanksgiving yes, celebrations. Always, yes, always. I've never been homeless. I have never 
um, experienced drug addiction. Um, I've never been put in jail for years for killing someone. A friend of mine was murdered in Las Vegas in 2001, in December, right before Christmas. And I, for some reason, still wanted to, the, the gentleman who killed him was given life without parole. And I was trying to find him before I left Las Vegas because I wanted to touch his hand. I wanted to touch the hand that killed my friend. I wanted to let him know that even though that horrible thing happened, that I forgive him and that he's loved and to do well in, in prison, which is where he's going to die. He was in his mid-30s, I think, when he was sentenced. Um, there's a beauty in giving to others. Um, I was a big brother at one time for big brothers, big sisters. Um, I was the celebrity spokesperson of Southern Nevada for a while. Whatever I could do on my own time to help that organization, I also worked with an AIDS organization as well. Whatever I could do, it was more of a joy for me than I, I think it would be for other some other people, you know. So I still want to do that. I loved being able to say, you don't have any place to go. You come here for Christmas. You come here for our Thanksgiving. Don't be alone. Don't be alone. So I do what I can to help others. Um, working with hospice was exhausting, but so fulfilling. In fact, one woman who was one of my clients before she died, actually hours before she died, just a couple hours, she said, this is your calling. This is your calling. Mm. And now that I can't be on stage anymore, I'm thinking, All right, what can I do from here? People have said, go on YouTube and start sharing your stories. So that's a possibility. I want to be able to give still. While I have life in me, I want to give, but I just don't know how yet. It's still mm. working all that through at this mm. point. You know? it's, it sounds to me as though your philosophy of, of life is it's not what you get out of life, it's what you give back. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And then in yeah. giving, we receive so much more, you know. I always tell my friends and people in my life, don't say thank you. Please don't say thank you. Say you appreciate me or you love me or whatever, but don't say thank you because I'm not doing it for the thanks. I'm doing it because I want to. I'm doing it because I want to be there for you or have the Thanksgiving, you know. Tell me you enjoyed the meal, that you loved the way it tasted. That's much more fulfilling. I don't need the thank you. Um, yes. Although I do send out thank you notes to people. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, somebody said to me once, well, sometimes people need to say it. You know, they need to say it. So I allow it at times. But if somebody gets close, I say, come on, stop. Don't say thank you. I, my first love, my greatest love, died in my arms in 1989. 
Oh. And uh, he was only 26. He was one of the first to get AIDS. And at that time, the medicine they were giving actually increased the AIDS. It didn't help it. Um, the last month of his life, I lived at the hospital, took care of him every day. I They wanted me to come and sign this $10,000 contract to perform for this event. I said, no, I'm not leaving his side right now. I'm not leaving. A friend of mine would take me out to lunch um, every day just to get away for an hour or so. But I, I didn't want to leave. And his mother uh, came from Buffalo. We, we were in Los Angeles. His mother came. She was there for a couple of days. And the doctors were saying he maybe has about a week left. And she said, I'm going to go home. I said, Marie, why are you leaving if the doctor only said he's got maybe a week left? And she said, Michael, he loves you more than anybody in the world. He's honest with you more than anybody in the world. And I want my son to die being with that person so he can say whatever he needs to say. And she gave me her son at that moment. When... The day he was getting very bad, I called her and I said, please, you need to come back. But she, I mean, six hours from New York to uh, Los Angeles. Um, so she didn't make it in time, but I was with her, or she was with him when he took his first breath, and I was with him when he took his last. Yeah. And she and I have that special bond still. Um, she's in a nursing home now. She has Alzheimer's uh, pretty bad. Um, but I sent her love through uh, her children. Yes. Um, uh, Matthew's brothers and sisters. And I've kind of become a surrogate uncle to um, the kids of the family because he they never knew him. You know, he died before they were born. He died before any any of them were married. So I do try to keep up with what the kids are doing. And when I have time with them, um, one of his nephews, his namesake actually, is gay. Super artistic guy. Oh, my God. He just graduated high school. He's going to be a set or a costume designer. This kid's amazing. Just amazing. Wow. He doesn't want to be on stage, you know. So I, I just really like to encourage him to be the best he can be. Getting older for me has been really difficult because I'm not afraid of dying. Um there's a part, I think, when we get older that we say, okay, well, you know, I just went to a funeral of my former musical director last week. So we die when we get old. You know, our parents die and we're pushed to the front of the line. I think you and I chatted about that for a bit. But I want to be able to to give, to entertain, to... At the funeral on Saturday, last Saturday... I was introduced as the legendary Michael Baraka. Hmm, legendary? I, you know, yeah. sometimes you don't know what you've done to 
uh, influence others, you know. Uh, and it was humbling, but it's like, no, don't say that about me. Don't say that about me, you know. I'm just me. I'm just me. Yeah. I wish I could be on stage again, but... Does it embarrass you yeah. when, when people sing your praises like that? It shouldn't do. Maybe embarrassed is not the right word. Maybe humbled. Because I'm no different than anybody else, you know. Because I was blessed with some kind of talent doesn't mean I'm better than anybody else, you know. Just because my name is on a marquee in Las Vegas with Debbie Reynolds' name doesn't mean I'm better than you. But to have my parents come to see me perform in Las Vegas. And when my mother saw that marquee, she cried. That, to me, is far more important. It's for other people that I even perform as I entertain. You know, it's it's for the audience. It's to make them happy. It's make them forget their troubles. There was one night in Las Vegas. We had kind of a small audience that night, and there was part of me that was like, oh, I'm tired. <laughs> you know, I did, uh, okay. So I mustered up the courage and went, and I have a, as well as a Partridge family, I have a Miss America segment in my nightclub act as well, where I bring three ladies up on stage, and one of them becomes Miss America for the night. And I take a picture with her afterward, and and uh, she gets a crown and flowers. This one night, I just was not in the mood to perform that night, but I did. It was a smaller audience. Afterward, the woman who became Miss America for the evening and her sister came up to me. The Miss America lady said, I brought my sister to Las Vegas because her son just died of cancer and I wanted her to be able to just relax and enjoy that woman came up to me and hugged me and she said you have no idea what you have done for my life that to me is all worth it you never know one person that you've helped or you could influence or um, just be part of what they are and who they are and I'll always remember that lady is part of me now. Her son is part of me. That is right, because yeah. you have a gift, Michael, to heal, not only as an entertainer, but as a friend. Mm. I know. And, and as a stranger, <laughs> and as yes. a stranger to people. Yeah. And yeah. that's a beautiful gift. Thank you. You know, many people in this in this world are blessed with healing hands which mm -hmm. can be used in so many different ways. Right. And you right. have you have found a path to use that to heal strangers, friends, family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I can. Um, my focus on Saturday was on my friend that died. And so being introduced as legendary was, well, maybe I am for this city, but... You know, there was a time when I was, because I was gone for 29 years, and when I decided that I was going to come home again, I had my choice of going back to Vegas or coming home. And I wanted to be here. I hadn't been here in a long time. The architecture, I love the snow. Um, 
So I wanted to come back to Buffalo. And before my mom died, she and I discussed it because they had moved to Arizona, my mom and dad, in 1978. I stayed here. I was performing. There was a time I couldn't go anywhere without being recognized in this city. Even if it was just one person, you know, would come up to me and say, oh, we saw your show, blah, blah, blah. To come back and not have that recognition was a little bit hard on my ego to deal with. And again, wanting to perform, I wanted to get back on stage. I started rehearsing, and then the spinal stenosis hit. And that's how yes. my mom died, you know. Yeah, from the same thing. But she never wanted to have surgery, and I've already had two, so I have lots of Tin Man parts in me. <laughs> uh, and now they want me to go in for a third surgery. Um, so I'm still working through that. Uh, because it would be my whole spine would be almost Tin Man. Uh, <laughs> so I said to the doctor, can I have an oil can to go with me wherever I go, please? <laughs> yeah, even when I'm in have surgery or I'm, I'm being taken care of, I always try to make it fun okay. for the nurses, you know, when I've been in the hospital and... So we'll see. I'm still contemplating that decision, but... Yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's kind of where I am right now. Having yeah. the Partridge Family group on Facebook um, that yes. I started because of this little bus. That little bus. Um, this yeah. little bus. Mm -hmm. um, a friend of mine gave this to me when my mother was dying. And I said, you know what? I'm sitting here. I'm helping her. I'm going to start this Partridge Family group thing. So I did. <laughs> yeah. And um, and even though I don't post on it all the time, and I have um, the other administrator um, that's there, it still gives me some positive things. You know, I can go and I can look at something or read something or doing an interview with you. This is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I love I love speaking to you, Michael, and hearing your oh, wonderful you. your wonderful stories. Um, thank you. We'll go back to David. We'll come full circle here. How important was the music of the Partridge family to the history of American pop music? Well, uh, I think it faded over time. I mean, there were times when the Partridge family was number one on all the charts. Uh, David had more celebrity status than the Beatles at one time. The music for me was extremely important. It was so much a part of me, um, especially that first episode where the two songs, uh, Having a Ball and um, oh, the other one, yeah, the good times it were never recorded on any of the original albums, and it frustrated me so much. I remember when they started reruns, I took a tape recorder and held it up to the TV so I could record those two songs. Yes. I mean, yeah. Porch Family Music has always been part of me, and I would always fantasize about, you know, the, the logo on the drums with the figures and then the, uh, Simone the dog. I said, you know, we can always add another figure in there for me. I could be the orphaned cousin that goes and lives with the Partridge family. <laughs> so it was very important to me. I wanted to be part of it. The fourth season still is a little difficult for me mm. to watch. 
I don't think adding um, Ricky yeah. in was a good idea. It was not the way I wanted to see it no. go. Well, we all knew by that time David was tired with the character. Yes. He wanted to do his own thing. You, as a performer, you can understand that. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I've never been in a sitcom. I have friends who have worked on sitcoms, but I've never been in one. Television I've done was always specials and live yes. things. Um, so I don't know what that feels like for an mm. entertainer, mm. but... When somebody of his magnitude wanted to just do his own thing, you know, he wanted to sing rock music, yeah. you know, not bubblegum music. Mm. You know, the bubblegum music stays so much a part of him, even to the end. It's like there are certain things you cannot rid yourself of. Judy Garland and Somewhere Over the Rainbow, David Cassidy and the Partridge Family, there is something that he will... Audiences would be upset if they didn't hear him sing a couple of songs yes. from the Partridge Family because that brings back the memory of why we fell in love with him to begin with. Judy Garland is one of my favourite ac actresses and I was brought up on the musicals with, with my mother. She loved uh -huh. all those uh, old films. One day I was watching Easter Parade and suddenly, something about her, and I was probably about not even a teenager at that point, but something about her suddenly captured my imagination. And then <laughs> when I saw her in, um, I think it was Summerstock, she became those characters, and she wasn't Judy Garland from The Wizard of Oz. Maybe sometimes when you are so good at one particular role... That will stay with you forever, regardless forever. of what, what it, whatever you do. Do you, do you think that was the case with, with David? He was so good at being Keith yes. Partridge yes. that it stuck um, with him. Yeah, I think there is a part of him that will always be Keith the same way Dorothy will always be part of Judy Garland. When she died in 1969... The pictures that were announcing her death were all from The Wizard of Oz, you know. The Wizard of Oz has been part of my life to a very big part. And a lot of people will say your name has become synonymous with The Wizard of Oz uh, because they see something or I say I'm the Tin Man. I played the Scarecrow when I was in high school. So I think that there are roles that or songs that you'll be identified with. I think most entertainers will will have that. I, I don't think it's true for the Beatles, though. I think that, you know, that's not true for them. But, yeah. but people who did TV shows, Davy Jones, for example, mm. with, uh, when he was on The Monkees, there's still part of him that was part of that time period. And David did have, from what I've been told, had... I can feel your heartbeat and a couple of other songs, Parch family songs in his show. Yeah. Um, I have another Judy Garland or Over the Rainbow story, too. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to share that with us? Sure. I was doing a show called Those Wonderful Years uh, in Niagara Falls, and I was singing Over the Rainbow in the show. One of the things that I put into my Vegas act was I, I know every single line in The Wizard of Oz. You cannot stump me 
on anything in the Wizard of Oz. And in my, I would pick out somebody in the audience. I'd say, give me a scene, any scene in the Wizard of Oz, and I will do it for you. And I would do the character voices as best I could. And then I would sing Over the Rainbow. I got a notice from the Tamps Whitmark Music Library that owned the rights to the Wizard of Oz saying, you need to take that song out of your show or pay the royalties. And I said, okay, well, how much are the royalties on the song? And they said $400 a night. Okay, so I have to pay over $1,000 to sing Over the Rainbow. I said, is there any way around that? And they said, well, if you got permission from one of the composers, you could do it, and you wouldn't have a problem. So a friend of mine in, in New York City found Eva Harburg, who wrote the lyrics over the rainbow, got his phone number, and I called him. And I explained the situation, and I told him, you know, what a fan I was of his music, and... Uh, the Wizard of Oz, blah, blah, blah. And he gave me his permission to sing Over the Rainbow anytime, any place I wanted to sing it. Isn't that great? Wow. Isn't that cool? That's As, uh, just another really wonderful story of, you know, speaking with E.Y. Harburg and being able to give him his permission to, uh, to sing it. Yeah, pretty cool. I love the way you have such a positive attitude in life michael the things that you have you have gone through i mean a hollywood scriptwriter would struggle to write your story <laughs> i hope it's a musical <laughs> <laughs> as long as it's a musical that's fine yeah yeah, yeah. it's turning tragedies into triumphs and scars into stars i've lost so many people in my life to death through AIDS. You go through my my picture album and it's like dead, 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 dead. Um, I even said to somebody recently, I said, I don't cry anymore when people die. I wonder if that's a bad thing because I'm just accepting of the, my one dog that I had, when I had to put him down, I cried. I cried harder for my dog than I did my mom which I thought was kind of interesting, you know. Again, my faith, if we, if we truly believe there's something more than this here, then our faith should say, yes, enjoy your heaven. Do you not live by the words of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz? <gasps> so much so, yes. And that's why I came back. You know, when you go searching for your heart's desire... Don't look any further than your own backyard. And there truly is no place like home. It's been difficult at times coming home to Buffalo. Again, not having that same recognition I did, you know, hits my ego a little bit. Um, but the things I have been able to do, the people I have been able to help, the uh, uh pageants, the women that I have made a difference in their life as a producer, because I still produce, uh, my last one was 2017, 2018, 2018 was my last uh, production, it was before all the pandemic stuff, and I still, I, I probably can't produce anymore, but I still 
uh, I just told a friend of mine who's at the Miss Virginia pageant this week, and I said, tell them I want to judge next year. I mean, I can still do stuff. When I hear back from these young women and I tell the stories of my involvement with Miss America, and I have friends who are former Miss Americas now who will write to all my contestants that I have in a state or local pageant and give them encouragement. And knowing how much that organization benefits the young women of this country, it's not a beauty pageant. It's a scholarship organization that gives out more money and scholarships to the women than anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world. These women are so educated and so goal-oriented. And to be able to give them something that when they, it's like my last big, big television pageant I had, we did the Prince Ali number from Aladdin as the song before the swimsuit portion of the competition. And I had cast of thousands and uh, two camels, a zebra, a Bengal tiger, and an elephant on stage. My goal was, you know, I want these women, when they have children and they have grandchildren, to be able to put in that tape and say, I was in this. I was part of that. Um, so, yes, that is um, one of the things that I still am part of is, you know, the Miss America family, as we call it. And it is. It's a family of people all over the country that just want to help these young women to be the best that they can be. And that that's a message we can take forward for everybody. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Yes. I tell you, Michael, I have enjoyed today so much speaking with you, mm -hmm. and I believe you have many more curtain calls to come. Oh, well, let's hope so. <laughs> you do. From your mouth to Santa Claus's ears. <laughs> <laughs> A huge thanks to Michael for his time today. And remember, you can access the archives of all podcast episodes through whichever platform you get your podcasts from. Thank you for downloading this podcast and we'll see you again soon.